Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Hello, and welcome to the pilot episode of Red and Green, a new podcast about anti-capitalist politics with a focus on radical environmental activism. I'm Bob Bazenko, a history professor who specializes in U.S. foreign relations and radical history. And I'll be joined by Scott Parkin, who's an inspiring environmental activist out of the Bay Area, working with Rainforest Action Network and Rising Tide, among others. Our goal here is to give a different perspective on politics and the environment, apart from the type that you usually get from NGOs who offer reforms and tweaks to the system, but don't really stress the connections between capitalism and environmental crisis. To begin the podcast, we have a really special guest today, Stoughton Lind. It would take way too long to give an adequate and meaningful introduction to Stoughton. He's been at the center of almost every major people's movement, in the later 20th and now 21st centuries. He was the director of education for Mississippi Freedom Summer. He was an anti-war activist who traveled to Hanoi in 1965, and he lost his job at Yale as a result of that. He and his wife, Alice, who is another inspiring activist, have been deeply involved in prison reform and anti-death penalty politics for decades now. Recently, they've been working with soldiers on issues of PTSD and moral injury. But perhaps no issue is connected to Staten Land as much as the role of labor and unions in the United States. Today, we're in Niles, Ohio, which is our shared hometown, which is just next to Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown was one of the most productive steelmaking areas in the world in the early 20th century, and the site of some of the major labor battles of that era. Unionized workers in the steel industry made good wages and were able to live a decent life. In the later 1970s and thereafter, that all changed and a rapid process of deindustrialization began and unions went into a steep decline and the attendant social problems that come with that are still growing even now. When the factories first closed in 1977, Stoughton was a founder and leader of a coalition to bring those plants back to life, but the steelmakers and the Carter administration rejected their plans. So Stoughton today is going to talk about the history of labor, what went wrong, the role of unions in America today, and why so many people, working class people, supported Donald Trump, as well as other issues linked to that. So please enjoy this great opportunity to listen to Stoughton Lind. Thank you so much, Stoughton Lind and Alice Lind will be joining us, uh, hopefully. Uh, we're going to talk today mostly, I think, about the organized labor unions, uh, where they were, where they are, maybe why so many people in unions supported Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, you've been in Youngstown for quite some time. You've been involved in Youngstown politics for quite some time. You were there in 1977 when things really turned badly. Um, just a, a little bit. What I, I don't think people nowadays, you know, union memberships at 10%, I don't think people really know 
what labor was like, especially in the post-World War II era, its strength, uh, and, you know, some of the concessions it made in order to get to that economic position. Well, perhaps I should say a word about how Alice and I found ourselves thinking about the labor movement. I was an assistant professor of history at Yale from 1964 until 1967. But in January 1966, the war in Vietnam was escalating very rapidly. And in the space of a year, I went from being the master of ceremonies at a Carnegie um, uh, rally in New York City all the way to making a surreptitious trip to North Vietnam with Tom Hayden and Herbert Aptecker and um, in effect uh, giving up my academic life. Not as a voluntary act, but that was the effect of doing that on the Yale community. So we thought, well, uh, Students for a Democratic Society is going to have its national headquarters in Chicago. Chicago's been a pretty lively place in the history of American radicalism. Um, we moved to Chicago, where at, I think, five universities, the history department voted to hire me for a full-time tenure-track job, and whoever is in the chain of command and usually just rubber stamps everything sure. of that kind, interfered and uh, denied me a further academic uh, Five simultaneously, life. wow. One at a time. Yeah. One at a time. Oh, so, okay, but still, wow. And that included Northern Illinois University, yeah. where Al Young was Young. teaching, Roosevelt University that had a, something of a radical past, Loyola. St. Joseph's. And, uh, and so, what to do? And I was still very unclear about that in August 1968, when the Democratic Party had its convention in Chicago, and uh, the whole world was watching as uh, Tom Hayden and others led street protests. I got arrested for a nonviolent effort to speak in the immediate neighborhood of the convention. And I was just soaking in a hot bath at the uh, end of a day of being in jail, getting out of jail, <clears throat> Alice carefully examining if the uh, Chicago's finest drove up looking for me, <laughs> where she might see that they were coming, but not necessarily call herself to their attention. They were parked outside the house. And uh, I got a call. I was in the bathtub, hot bathtub. It was 
none other than Saul Alinsky, the uh -huh. leading community organizer sure. of the day, who um, I think saw me as a kind of symbolic link to younger radicals, and primarily for that reason offered me a job at a school for organizings that he was creating. And <clears throat> I was one of the initial four faculty members. And one of the other, one of the students, I was technically a faculty member, um, was a man from Gary, Indiana, who had worked in a steel mill. And somehow he began to tell me about a man named John Sargent, who he said was kind of the, the person from all, from whom all good things sprungeth. And, uh, but he said he didn't know whether John was, was um, would talk with me. So I telephoned John Sargent, he invited myself, Alice and our infant daughter to supper. Uh, Alice, how old would uh, Martha have been? She was about three or four. I remember John took her to see the goldfish in a pond. The, the first thing he did, he took her by the head, and there was just never any question about our being buddies of the spirit, although we have lived quite different lives. And he completely revised my left liberal view of trade unions. Uh, in the steel industry, uh, United States Steel had entered into a contract with the United Steel Workers of America. U.S. Steel didn't want to strike, didn't want any unpleasantness. They entered into a contract, and Alinsky, a little-known fact, took his basic organizing ideas from um, the early CIO, and in particular from John Lewis, about whom Alinsky wrote the first biography. And so in hearing Alinsky's views of how you go about uh, putting things together in a working-class community, I was really also hearing a kind of reflection from the inside on the CIO. And it was a time when, despite the fact that there had been no strike in the organization at U.S. Steel, at Little Steel, <clears throat> which meant Bethlehem, Republic, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, and one or two others, um, there was indeed a, a strike in the spring of 1937, and that was the strike in which um, 10 workers were shot in the back and killed at, at a Memorial Day strike support rally in Chicago. And the liberal press, my parents included, just basked in the reflection of the CIO. 
But what I learned, what John Sargent taught me, and which rang a bell as true because of uh, the work I was doing at Alinsky School, which was so derivative, particularly from the organization of the packing house workers on the southwest side of Chicago. <laughs> the outline was something like this. The goal of any sensible union mo movement was so-called recognition by the employer, which was understood to mean that henceforth, uh, in the absence of a very challenging procedure for getting rid of a union once you had it there, um, in order to work at, let's say, a steel mill uh, of any size and significance, you had to be a member of the union, and if you were not, and if the company decided to hire you at that moment in time, you would become a member. And from John, I learned to look at, at the process in this way. And I, Alice and I put together a, a book of oral history called Rank and File. Wow. And in every edition of it, I think there have been four editions, um, there are these two or three pages from John Sargent that just, uh, for me, were like the heavens opening and, and for the first time understanding what I was seeing and feeling. John said that, yes, you never saw a period of rank-and-file activity to compare with the, the early days of the Union at places where um, the CIO established a foothold. And he said, what people don't understand is what happened next. Because the, the model that um, all trade unionists were encouraged to subscribe to was that you asked recognition from the employer meaning that you were the only union that the employer would bargain with. And uh, what went down in that initial contract, if you were so fortunate as to get one, was likely to be the contract for a long time to come. Um, well, for just to give you a feel, a, a whiff of the, the new atmosphere. To give you a whiff of the new atmosphere, um, when you made a con, let's take a big mill, and this is the one I'm going to focus on, Inland Steel, which was one of the um, little steel companies. Um, when you uh, voted as a local union on the contract that was being negotiated between the United Steel Workers of America and the corporation, John told me we would be up on his roof, uh, he putting on new shingles and I listening. Um, 
what John told me was that the, the negotiation was entirely in the hands of the National Union and that there had been at least one instance where the steel workers at Inland Steel who had their own contract committee had unanimously rejected the contract reached between the National Trade Union and the corporation and there was nothing they could do about it. Not only that, the company The, the typical CIO contract um, had very, there was a great similarity in the initial contracts that the CIO obtained in auto with the United Auto Workers, rubber workers, packing house workers, electrical workers, and so on. What, what was the guts of, of a CIO contract? There were two contract clauses to which John directed my attention and which more and more verified themselves as, as the essence of, of what that tremendous upsurge of labor ended in being all about. Two key contract provisions. The first and most obvious was that, as everyone knows, uh, with certain rare exceptions like U.S. Steel, the CIO obtained its first contract with uh, the leading company or the leading companies if they bargained together in that particular industry with two clauses. First clause in the new contract between the CIO and Corporation X or Company X was a no-strike clause, which should have made people's ears flap from, from the very first moment. How had they gotten this contract? How had they gotten that far? Through striking. What was the essence of the new contract? You can't strike during the duration of the contract because... But don't worry, we have this new grievance arbitration right. procedure through which you'll solve all your problems. Well, to make a very long and complex story short, when you negotiate for a contract in a period following an enthusiastic drive for recognition, the right to strike is a little abstract because people have just been out on strike, they've been scraping through, they've been maintaining their households, and and the the, the labor doesn't have a, a very strong hand to play. And so the first characteristic provision of a CIO contract would be uh, surrender the right to strike and related forms of direct action like slowdowns for the duration of the contract. And the grievance procedure proposed and 
enthusiastically administered by many liberal college professors, <laughs> um, cheerfully uh, entered into the no-strike clause as an essential constituent part of a CIO contract because these were uh, academics, these were people who, who thought they changed the world through their um, intellectual <laughs> conversations. And the, the best comment on the, on the grievance procedure was that of a man named Marty Gleberman, a, a radical um, organizer in, in auto who wrote a, a poem or short story about a grievance filed in the place where he worked during the summer heat. Can we open the windows a little? And um, time went by and time went by and Marty and his friends said, hey, what about that grievance? <laughs> We're melting now, but Pretty soon the weather's going to change. Well, in um, January, the arbitrator finally ruled for the union and the management people went through the part of the shop where Marty worked, <laughs> nailing the windows up so that everyone froze to death. It wasn't, it wasn't a very good way for, for uh, for resolving even small problems because it took so long and it was, was a disaster. after the merger, the FLCIO merger, or was this before that? No, this was before, before I'm that. talking okay. about early. This is okay. what people okay. miss. Right. Because the 35, CAO does 36, have this, 37. Yeah. The CAO has kind of a romantic uh, history. Exactly. Yeah. And what... In, in, the, in the long view, I think, bulks even larger, is that it was assumed that the steel industry and Amer the American economy, and generally, particularly during World War II, when there were uh, orders from the um, services that needed trucks and planes and bomb sites and what have you. Um, the assumption was a natural one that this way of life would endure forever. And uh, in a town like Youngstown, Ohio, where we are now sitting, um, there was a kind of a, a routine for, for life, which was that first of all, families from the same area that spoke the same dialect, maybe knew each other through intermarriage, would settle in the same part of town. Families would be together two or three evenings a week for a large communal meal. After graduating high school, which was a big deal, Young men would typically serve in the military for a year or two, come back, their uncle would get them a job in the mill, 
And before you knew it, they were passing on this way of life to their children, gradually with the expectation that it would be college, not high school. And that this child of theirs might come to wear a white collar and do what had hitherto been considered a middle-class job. It was a middle-class job. And these children of the working class were ab absorbed into such work, and the parents tended to regard their children's success at living a different way of life than their own way of life was the name of success. Well, it didn't go on forever. As a matter of fact, Youngstown <clears throat> is, I think, distinguished among American communities that I happen to know anything by the fact that it had three successive steel mill closures in 1977, 1978, 1979. The resistance grew greater year by year, but the problem, not everywhere, what was going on was that the company would make money from out-of-date technology at a certain mill. Steel would be made in open hearths instead of in electric furnaces or basic oxygen furnaces. And it meant that if your mill closed and you organized, as we did, a movement to, to revive the mills, to keep them alive under some form of worker or worker community ownership, um, you weren't just told you needed $20 million to buy the land and the existing buildings and if you could manage the machinery. You were told that unless you put up not only the 20 million to buy the, the, the skeleton of what was there, but an additional 200 million to modernize, it was just a cruel joke to reopen because you're still, you still would not be able to produce a ton of steel as cheaply as other places, some of them abroad, where they're Steel mills, in our case, had been destroyed during World War II, and they rebuilt with this newer technology. You had to be able to compete with it if you wanted to survive, and where were you going to find $225 million? The uh, United States government put up a $100 million loan guarantee fund for all steel mills for the whole country. Now, didn't Griffin Bell, who was the Attorney General, come to Youngstown to talk about this with you, or, or some, some Carter? That's some exactly, Carter administration. Not exactly. Oh, okay. Well, yes, the Carter administration was, oh, he came. Oh, okay. And met in the basement with lots of steel workers in their shirt sleeves and told them about it a little bit like Trump. 
mm -hmm. uh, to the, the great things he was going to do, and he didn't do them. Yeah. So, uh, what happened was that in addition to the no-strike clause in the typical CIO contract, you had a so-called management prerogative clause. And what those big words meant was that when it came to investment decisions, when it came to deciding uh, would the company stay here or move? If it stayed, what new technology would it need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those decisions would be made by exclusively by the um, company sure. and the union, the representative of all the workers in that place, because after your sign-in period was over, if you became a, an ongoing member of the of employee of the company, you had to join the union. The union simply stood by and rang its hands and uh, did what it could to, to get benefits for people whose work had been taken away. And uh, John Barbero, one of the people <clears throat> uh, because of whom we moved here, used to say that that was like arranging for funeral benefits. Yeah. Yes, you got a little money, but your job, your whole future, your sense of where you belonged, how your children would stand on your shoulders and going forward to a better life and so on, all of that uh, was swept away. And there's been absolutely no change in well, that regard. Over 40 years later, we've just seen this in Lordstown, it's 20 minutes away. We had an automobile assembly plant in Lordstown that opened, I believe, about 1970. And the feeling in the valley, it's hard to describe, but there was one other place that made electrical fixtures for General Motors, where you were also talking about 12,000, 15,000 union members. Um, people said, wow, we've always got... Lordstown. Yeah. No, you didn't, yeah. because in the last couple of years, I'm I'm talking in. Oh, what am I talking in? I was nineteen. No, I'm talking in the year two thousand. Um, Just a year or two ago, the, the Lord's, Lordstown went out of business, and they're talking now, uh, now about how they're going to do alternative this and mm. alternative that. But people have this dilemma. Should they stay in Lordstown where and surrounding communities where, of course, they've put down roots? Kids are going to school. They fixed up the house in a way that they, they and their wives or their husbands, if the union member is a woman, feel good about. Should they keep all that, but without a job, mm -hmm. which meant going into debt and and uh, really scraping along, 
or should they move uh, giving up any hope of getting back into a UAW-sponsored job um, like the one they had previously had. And so you have people driving hundreds of miles from, let's say, somewhere north of Detroit, coming to this area to see their family on the weekend. Yeah. And then on Sunday evening, heading out again for what at least was a job in which they felt it their obligation to maintain. Um, but bringing the, the, the family under severe stress and divorce, drugs, many. Mm -hmm problems that lay in wait. So that's the basic story of our last 50 years. Um, we tended to be regarded as people who, despite the fact that they were lawyers and some sort of academic, were on our side, were good people. So, for example, when Lordstown was in process of voting on the recently negotiated contract with General Motors, Alice and I went out to the picket line one day. Lo and behold, people I've never met before in my life who were auto workers, not steel workers, said, oh, start and he was always on our side which is a pretty gratifying feeling, but doesn't put much on the table for people whose whole way of life has been shot out from under them. And so uh, I think Alice and I are left with a sort of dual feeling of distress over the existing situation. I've taught a couple of courses at the local university, Youngstown State University, and the feeling I have there is that the kids are just getting their railway tickets for leaving town. Sure. That, that there's no real future for people here. I saw um, some data last year. Uh, Ohio actually uh, is one of the lower states in, in having college graduates here. And yet we have, you know, Ohio State, which is a massive school, a big state university system. And so I'm assuming that kids who do come to school, get a degree, they leave Ohio, they go elsewhere. Uh, because, you know, this, this is just a difficult place. It's very different than what I remember, you know, uh, growing up. Uh, my dad was a, worked for the city. He was the creator of an AFSCME union at, at the city of Niles. But most of my friend's fathers worked in the mills and they lived well. You know, they bought a house, they could go on vacation, they could send their kids to college, which was affordable at the time. Second vehicle. Yeah, exactly, all that. And now, um, I think people don't understand the residual effect. Businesses associated with GM, you know, Falcon Truffing, Trucking went under briefly, and then people own little, you know, fast food restaurants and mini marts and things like that go under. And uh, YSU's enrollment is down, I think, this year, partly because of that. And of course, as you mentioned, the uh, what we call the deaths of despair, opioids and 
poverty and suicides and things like that are, are soaring to really, really unknown levels. By the way, one might say, well, what about the local university? Are they leading a campaign for something or other? No. Uh, more than half the classroom hours are taught by, um, what do you call it? Well, adjuncts. By adjuncts. Yeah, I, that's... The adjuncts tend to be of two kinds. They are the wives or husbands of people academically employed at Youngstown State, where they're not really worried that much about how much money they make. And in fact, they haven't had an increase in 25 no, years. That's, that's and, countrywide. And, and the other thing that drives me nuts is... Uh, People say, well, but yeah, there are these courses that you can do on television. Yes. Well, maybe there are. But I remember, even at Yale, um, you know, hours, what are they called? Uh, hours when the faculty member will be available. Right. And, and people were sitting on the floor on desks, you know, wow. we, were, we were talking about things. And I don't believe you can do at least education that touches on the nature of society, who runs it, how can it be changed. I don't think you can do that very well over a television. No, I've, I've it, done those. It takes face-to-face. -face. Yeah, and it's a huge difference. Uh, some of the students work and they like to do that, but the big classes, I always make sure they're one-on-one -on -one. and it's 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 gratifying because you have a lot of students come in who've been through the public school system in texas which is not exemplary and you know the first day i kind of in a very subtle way say you've been lied to your whole life so i'm going to tell you something else and at the end of the semester like a significant number will line up and say man thank you i've never heard this before they're working class kids they're not invested in the system you know if i were at yale or brown or wesleyan they would be very different uh, so that's, that's gratifying. But, uh, one of the things, you know, uh, that I've noticed in the last few years is when I talk about labor, I have to kind of step back and say, oh, you don't really know what I'm talking about and give them a 10 or 15 minute kind of primer and what unions are. And, you know, I wrote a, a book for my class where there's a great deal of labor history. And I talk about the, you know, the great uprising and the battle of Blair Mountain and Ludlow, which is just absolutely stunning. The idea that there was you know, violent class war in the United States is just incomprehensible to most people. So it's, 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 uh, there's always been this sense that, you know, we work, we should be grateful that we have a job. Thank you, boss, whatever you want, that kind of thing. And I try to tell them it wasn't always like that. You know, there was a, uh, a period when, you know, workers stood up for themselves and, uh, it's just become more and more difficult. Um, Rank and file is uh, uh, one of the uh, ways I was introduced to you and Alice. I read a couple of your articles on the war for independence, and, and Stoughton is one of the uh, giants in that area. He's written uh, a, a very famous piece called, uh, was it the Who Shall Rule at Home? Is that the name of the very famous article about the kind of class dynamics within the, uh, the war for independence? Uh, and then uh, my labor historian at uh, Ohio State told me all about you. <laughs> So we uh, or during the period when I was just sniffing about and 
you know, wrestling the, with the question, should I be a uh, pretend steel worker or <laughs> a useless academic, decided to be a lawyer and it wasn't useless, it wasn't successful, but we put up a hell of a fight. And uh, I'm looking at the uh, oral histories that were offered by a series of um, rank-and-file folks that Alice and I encountered when we moved here, who were indeed the reason for our moving here, because there have been socialist manual workers in the United States who were not only against the boss, but against the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. who stuck up... Well, wasn't it one of the issues when Lordstown started? There was this kind of revolutionary movement within Lordstown that the Union leadership... Very, very you know, much, and yeah. guys... Uh, and you had the Dodge Revolutionary Movement, the drum, and uh, yeah, was it well, black workers? It was we, didn't, Ford and GM? we didn't have quite that because yeah. there wasn't the same concentration of African Americans. Right. But there was a spirit then. I'm trying to. Uh... Uh, many, many years ago, I interviewed Lane Kirkland because I was uh, discussing the Vietnam War and, and AFLCL's position on Vietnam. And he said, hey, we were making good money. So. You know, the fact that, you know, people were getting killed and Vietnam was getting destroyed was just irrelevant because it was it was good for uh, wages for uh, a certain group of, of workers in key industries. Yeah. This, I talked about the man named John Sargent. Mm -hmm. The steel worker from home about 1970, 50 years ago, I sort of formulated an initial hypothesis I haven't changed my mind an inch. I think he he really saw it. And there's a section of this oral history book, Rank and File, that I'm without a contract, without any agreement with the company, Without any regulation concerning hours of work, conditions of work or wages, a tremendous surge took place. We talk of a rank-and-file movement. The beginning of union organizer was the best kind of rank-and-file movement you could think of. John L. Lewis sent in a few organizers, but there were no organizers at Inland Steel. And I'm sure there were no organizers at Youngstown Sheet and Tube. The union organizers were essentially workers in the mill who were so disgusted with their conditions and ready for a change that they took the union into their own hands. So... I don't know if you've... Oh, I'm sorry. Well, let me just wrap this up by saying... There is a, a myth that the Little Steel Strike of 1937 was a failure because the Union in Steel, I'm talking about particularly, didn't win a contract. And the 
place where, where John Sargent uh, worked in Indiana, but near Illinois and Chicago, was a sort of medium-sized company called Inland Steel. And there, well, let me read. Sure. Well, what, what happened was that in Indiana, where Inland Steel, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, Bethlehem Steel, one of the U.S. steel mills in Gary, were all located, there was a special understanding between the strikers and the governor of Indiana, who kind of negotiated a separate agreement. He wasn't giving them a, a standard CIO contract which provided for hours of work, um, retiree benefits, etc., etc. No. What he said was any group of workers that wants to no negotiate with the boss is going to have an open door under this understanding. And that was all John and his friends needed because they had so much more capacity to to enliven the the mass that they were a part of than than anyone else and so here's a here's a book the entire book is about the 1937 strike by a very good historian it's called the last great strike and he accepts the general judgment that it was a terrible failure and the worker 10 people were killed in Chicago people went went back to work kind of dragging their bodies behind them but look what he also says on July 1st Inland Steel reopened the Indiana Harbor Mill amid cries of victory from thousands of jubilant workers some sporting beards that they had vowed to grow until the strike ended. The daily worker joined the chorus, likening the, quote, triumph, unquote, to the victory of the patriots over British tyranny. <laughs> um, yeah, they thought they had won because they had won. Right. They had a, a right to, to organize, they felt they could out-organize anybody else on the face of the earth, and they did because they worked there. That, uh, let me bring up one more thing, because um, we've seen what I call, I use the word resuscitation in the last few years of some of some labor activism, particularly among teachers, uh, the Flight Attendants Union, which really ended the shutdown, the government shutdown last year, and Sarah Nelson's been very active, and, and a lot of this stuff has been in violation of state law, you know, and they're going out anyway. Um, do you think that's kind of a, a, a trend or, or a development that can be built upon? Absolutely. Because at the same time that's happening, we have half of UAW is under indictment, you know, right now. Absolutely. And if I, I we don't travel very much now. <clears throat> I didn't get to West Virginia. But I understand that some of the teachers had a union, but that the mass right. of teachers did not. Right. So, you had this really interesting right. situation where the people who had a union could talk about some of the things they'd won. The people who didn't have a union could say, well, we like that and we're going to go out and get it. Yeah. 
And uh, yes, I think that can happen everywhere. And, and, and much of this is happening in so-called red states too. You know, not the, the not in Manhattan, not in San Francisco, but in, Arizona, yeah, exactly. Colorado. And that one thing I, I know, uh, one of the I, a lot of people around here, people I've talked to, I'm sure people you've talked to, who've been union members, worked in the factories, um, really supported Donald Trump in 2016. Now. Much of that, in, in my anecdotal uh, knowledge, was because they really didn't like the Clintons. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, even though they voted for Trump, they also spoke very well of, of Bernie Sanders. I just wonder, like, is that uh, kind of a sense of desperation? Like, you know, people have been lying to us, no one's done anything, Trump is coming down here and telling us he cares. Well, or is there more to it than that? Unfortunately, uh... I didn't understand it yeah. at the time. I don't think many people did. I thought that fascism was a product of a situation where there was a mass unemployment and people thought they were rebelling against capitalism along with uh, their other activities. And I think it was a superficial view that the, what I probably missed was that this well-entrenched father-to-son, indeed grandfather-to-father-to-son way of life, the, the rituals around high school graduation, the service in the military, all of that was just being undermined by the fact that there was no job to begin with to, to make these other things available. And uh, somehow this uh, distinguished war veteran who didn't fight because there was something wrong with his foot but he couldn't remember which right. foot it was, <laughs> Um, somehow he he picked up on on that and he said, well, it's simple. You need something. You need me. Right. I'm the only person in the world who can do this. Just follow me. I've seen a, a lot of liberal and, and leftists lately writing a lot about labor. None of them ever worked. <laughs> and um, they kind of dismiss some of the ideas I think you said as, oh, that's, that's kind of trite or that's corny or that's just a... And I, I've often said, you know, it's like, come to Youngstown, come, come on, I'll, I'll show you around. I don't know that well, but, and I think there is this sense among these kind of intellectuals that, that you know, uh, the working class, uh, you know, they're, they've been conned or they're not that bright or whatever. And I said, you know, they're, they're and, and I think one thing that you really said that's important is this, their community has been wiped out, not just their job. Um, last thing, I'm going to put you on the spot. You sang a very beautiful IRA lullaby to me the other day, and I was wondering if we could get an encore performance of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was explaining that my parents were both teachers. They um, hired a young woman from Ireland to be what I guess you'd call our governess. There must be a better word, but I, I'm not thinking of it. And she was a remarkable person who brought with her the the songs of the... Uh, Irish uprising in 1916 
and there were songs about my old Fenian gun. There were songs about uh, Michael Dwyer. The British soldiers surrounded the house where he and his friends took refuge and set fire to it. And a man who had already uh, been shot said, um, they only have single shot muskets. I'm going to go to the doorway. They'll empty their guns and you all make a break for it. So anyway, the song that I sang was um, a little bit of Kevin Barry. Early on a Monday morning, just high upon a gallow tree, Kevin Barry gave his young life for the cause of liberty. Just a lad of 18 summers, still there's no one can deny. As he walked to death that morning, proudly held his head on high. Shoot me, shoot me like a soldier, do not hang me like a dog. For I fought for dear old Ireland on that still September morn. All around the little bakery where we fought them hand to hand. Stand informer, turn informer, and we'll free you. Barry proudly answered no. I also might mention one more thing about where my, let's call it for the moment, radicalism came from. And I want to describe a experience of my father's which is the thing about his life of which I am most proud and uh, <clears throat> in a sense gave me a, a pattern that he managed for a summer and I have tried to manage for a longer period of time. He went to Union Theological Seminary although he had a very uh, um, He didn't believe in, in, in a personal God. I, I'm not sure how he would have described what he believed in, but it was much more an, an ethic or sense of solidarity than any kind of ideology. And it was the custom at Union Theological Seminary between the first and second years uh, during the summer a student would become a temporary minister at a community that had no regular pastor. Something that, that we ran into in, in uh, South America later on. A lot of liberation theology came from these people who, whose basic relationship was not with some big church bureaucracy, but with a particular community, mm -hmm. a particular mm -hmm. neighborhood. 
So my dad somehow drew a uh, ticket to Elk Basin, Wyoming. And he arrived there early in the 1920s by stagecoach. And the first evening at the boarding house, he sensed a kind of chill in the air, tried to figure out what it was, made a decision that very evening sought out the man who did the hiring for Standard Oil. This was a, an oil community. Was hired as a pick and shovel laborer. Spent the summer as a pick and shovel laborer next to people who lived there and preached, preached in the schoolhouse Sunday night. Ah. And I thought, well, at least that's the beginning of the kind sure. of relationship that might exist between an awful lot of teachers and doctors and lawyers sure. and the working class <coughs> communities they serve. Yeah, and I think that's something that, that I hope it really stands out, the idea that this is more than a, a place where you go to work, that it's it's bigger than that. And uh, yeah. there's a community, and you know, people used to go out and have softball teams and right. no, well, he, my father he, doing he that. He couldn't preach on during yeah. the day on Sunday yeah. because everybody went rainbow trout fishing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Alice and Stott, and uh, tender comrades, and uh, uh, I appreciate this so much. Uh, so um, it's really wonderful, and you've both been an inspiration to, to a lot of us.